It's my job this morning to tee up our summer series for you. Um, So we're going to go about it in a couple different ways. First thing, a little unusual, there's a couple numbers on the screen. I could have made them bigger, couldn't I? Sorry, Uh, don't be impressed in my wizardry with the screen. Um, But there's a couple numbers on the screen. Just, you don't have to jump in or say it unless you want to, but do these numbers mean anything to anybody in the room? I mean, they're not personal debts, I hope. But... The first number, it has nothing to do with Japan either. It has nothing to do with the population of Japan or any neighborhood in Japan for that matter. 600,000 plus or minus, you know what that number is? According to the Center for Disease Control, it's a number of people that die every single year in America to heart-related conditions. Heart-related issues, heart-related diseases. 204,000 plus or minus, That's the number from the most recent statistics and census work done that is the population of the metro city of Richmond. Not greater Richmond, which would be Ashland and Henrico Hanover down to Petersburg, but metro Richmond, the city of Richmond, 204,000 people, give or take a handful or so. Three times the population of metro Richmond dies every single year in this country due to heart-related conditions, heart-related diseases. I was looking this up and I saw this and I had to just stop and pause for a moment. I I think I had to pick my jaw up off the floor uh, when I was reading these statistics. But here's the thing, Uh, as staggering as those statistics might actually be, as jaw-dropping as they were to me and they might be to you, there's something even bigger that I think we lose sight of and that's this. Unless God does something supernatural in the hearts of men and women, That 600,000 give or take deaths that happen every year in America, that's about 25% of all the deaths that occur in America. Unless God does something supernatural in the hearts of men and women, the death toll to heart-related conditions will be 100%. The death toll to heart-related conditions will be 100%. And I'm gonna have to explain myself this morning, and I'm gonna do it by giving a brief lesson in spiritual cardiology. Is that that fair? I'm by no means a biological expert on the heart, but but I have given myself to to study of of spiritual cardiology. And so I wanna give you a brief lesson to spiritual cardiology this morning to introduce what we're doing this summer, but to also explain what it is I just said. So here we go. Spiritual cardiology, we're gonna look at the anatomy of the heart, the function of the heart, the pathology or the problem with our hearts that unless God does something supernatural in your heart and in the heart of every man or woman who walks on the face of this earth, the death toll to heart-related conditions will be 100%. You ready? All right, that sounded really overwhelming. I wanna start with the anatomy. What, What is the heart? When the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that that biological organ that sits in the middle of your chest. If you've been around here for any length of time, you know this. We we talk about this often. It's central to our understanding of scriptures, which is why we're going over it this morning to introduce what we'll be doing this summer. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that thing that pumps within your side your chest. It's talking about the inner you, 
The Bible often talks about the outer man and, and the inner man. And when the Bible talks about the inner man, it, it refers to the heart. And when the Bible refers to the heart, it's referring to everything that makes up the inner you, the inner man. It's your mind. It's your affections. And it's your will. And I want to show you this really quick throughout the Bible, just so you can get the context for this and this anatomy. The, the first aspect of the inner you is, is your mind. And when the Bible talks about your mind or your heart and it's referring to this aspect of your heart, it's talking about your ability to think, your ability to understand, your ability to reason, your ability to doubt, your ability to discern things, your ability to actually remember things. This is what the Bible is talking about when it refers to the mind as an aspect of the heart. It's your thoughts and your beliefs and your understandings and your memories and your judgments and your conscience and your discernment. This is an aspect of your heart when the Bible talks about this. Let me show you this in a couple of places this morning. Matthew chapter 13. Look at that. I made it work. All right. Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And look what he says, and understand, and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. When the Bible talks about the heart, sometimes it's talking about that part of the inner you that refers to your mind and your capacity to understand. And Mark, Mark chapter two, verses five through seven. They're gonna come up on the screen, I made it work. I wasn't sure when I made this if I was actually gonna do it correctly, but it's gonna come up, we're gonna flip around. So just pay attention up here and write down the references. Mark chapter two, verses five through seven. And when Jesus saw their faith, this is the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, how great would it be to hear that? That's a different sermon, but how great would it be to hear that? Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there and look at what they were doing. They were questioning. Where? In their hearts. They were questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bible's referring here when it's talking about the heart to that faculty of the mind that's part of it's the inner you. Give me an Old Testament reference. First Kings chapter three, verses 10 through 12. This is a famous one. You'll be familiar with this. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. He could ask for anything, but he asked for wisdom. And so God replied, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. Listen to what he says. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or ever will have. So one aspect of the anatomy of the heart, this spiritual cardiology, is referring to the mind. That part of you that thinks, that reasons, that discerns, that understands, that, that can actually have the capacity to, to doubt. That's what it's referring to, but that's not all that the Bible is talking about at times when it talks about the inner you or the heart. It also is talking about at times your affections, your mind and your affections. The affections come closest to what we tend to think about in common usage of the word heart. When we talk about the, the heart in our common language, we're, we're usually referring to our, our emotions, our feelings, our, our desires, our, our wants. And this is what we think about when we talk about the heart, but this is just one aspect of the heart when the Bible is talking about the heart. And I like the word affections. Affections have this deep and rich connotation to not just emotion and feeling, but something with, with girth and weight to it. You have an, an affection for something. 
It's an old Puritan word. But this is an aspect of the heart the Bible talks about pretty often. Let me just give you a couple examples. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse nine. This is what the writer said. He said, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger, talking about emotions again, anger lodges where? It's in the heart of fools. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Listen to this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, but because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and in thirst, nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. But Isaiah chapter 35. I'll give you another one. Isaiah 35 verse four. This is what God tells the prophet Isaiah to speak to his people. Say to those who have a anxious heart. What does God want the prophet to say to those who have an anxious heart? Be strong, fear not. Your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The Bible, when it talks about the heart, is often talking about these affections, these emotions, these desires, these feelings. Hebrews chapter 12, I'll give you a New Testament reference. There's so many throughout the Bible we could go to. I'm just gonna give you a sample for time's sake. Hebrews chapter 12, verse three. I'm actually gonna read it from a different translation, from the Holman Christian Standard translation, because the ESV does this work for you. It actually makes this interpretive jump for you, so you don't actually get the word that they actually use. They translate it the, 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 for you, never mind, I'm gonna read it to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse three, that's another lesson. This is what it says. For consider him, talking about Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Consider Jesus, the writer says, so that you won't grow weary and lose what? Heart. So you won't grow weary and lose heart. The Bible's picture of the anatomy of the heart is not simplistic. It's not reduced to simply the emotions and the feelings, the imaginations and the desires that we so commonly drill the heart down to. It's not less than that, it's just so much more than that. It includes the mind, it includes the affections, but it also includes the will. It also includes the will. And when the Bible talks about or refers to the will, it's talking about that aspect of our heart that then chooses or determines what we will do. It determines the decisions that we actually make. The will is informed by the mind and it's informed by the affections and then it makes whatever appropriate decisions that need to be made to pursue what is deemed to be most desirable, which has become most desirable in the heart because it's been the most informed by the mind. We'll talk about that function in just a minute. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 and 20 says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life. They've been informed what is most valuable, what is most desirable, but now they have to choose. Choose life that you and your offspring may live How? Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Just give you one more example, Psalm chapter 25, verse 12. 
says this, who is the man who fears the Lord? Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. The mind inflames the affections, which then compel the will to make whatever decisions necessary, whatever things need to be decided to pursue that which is understood and felt to be most desirable and most valuable. That is just a basic biblical anatomy of the heart. And it's crucial that you get this. And this is, I'm giving you the most simple picture of this that I can give. It's crucial that we get this going into what we're gonna go into this summer, which I'll take you into and introduce in a few minutes. We've got to understand how our heart works, what our heart is, how it operates, and the problems, the conditions, the pathologies that reside in our heart. And so now we'll jump to the function. And that's what our heart is, it's the inner man. It's the mind, it's the affections, it's the will. But how does it work? Well, these three things, the the mind and and the affections and, and the will, they function as a unit. Just like the various aspects and parts of your heart function as a unit. None of them function independently from the other. And the appropriate function of your biological heart requires that each piece of the heart function together, that it do its job. It functions as a unit. You just, I mean, if this is you, uh, don't tell me because you're gonna ruin my example, but do you ever or can you even sit there where you are right now and consciously know and tell me exactly what part of your heart is functioning right now? Like, feel it, like, I, I, feel it, discern it, tell me. Just like we can't sit here and, and nobody sits and consciously recognizes what aspect of their biological heart is functioning at that moment to keep you alive and then working in concert with your brain and with your lungs to keep you breathing and to keep you operating. This is the way your heart, your spiritual heart, your mind, your affections and your will work. Just as your biological heart in conjunction with your lungs and with your brain operate as a unit at a speed that you can't even comprehend to keep you alive, so your spiritual heart, your mind and your affections and your will operate at times at such a rapid speed that it's hard to even discern why it is we're doing exactly what we're doing. I mean, what is it that gave rise to that desire and then gave rise to that decision and that action. You see, our our minds, they inform our affections of what the source of our our greatest and, and highest happiness and satisfaction would be. This is what happens. Your your mind takes information And it then informs your affection, your emotion, your desires of of what it is that would bring you the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction. And as your affections now and your desires are set on that thing and fanned into flame by your mind, they then compel your will to make whatever decisions necessary to go after that thing which before you will bring you the most lasting pleasure. This happens in everything. It happens so fast we can't even discern it at times. It's why I choose cheesecake over ice cream every single time. My mind has informed my affections that that will bring me greater satisfaction than that and I've got a whole host of reasons why. And it happens so fast 
that I can make that decision like that. But it happens in bigger things too. And that's just a trivial example. But this is how our heart operates. That's the inner function and working of your heart, your spiritual heart. And it happens so fast. The problem is we, we don't really recognize at times when it's misfiring, when it, it might be informing us and compelling us and directing us in an inappropriate direction. See, just like our, our biological heart, that we generally don't know that there's a problem with it until something actually happens. Long before we're ever aware of, of a problem with our biological heart, that problem has been building up over time. And we generally aren't aware of it until it causes damage. The same thing tends to happen in our spiritual heart. There is a, a problem that we have to deal with. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. Let me show you the the chief pathology of our heart, the chief problem of our heart. If our heart's made up of our mind and our affections and our will and those things work together as a unit to inform our souls of what is most desired and compel us to pursue action towards that, here's the problem. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things. Look at what he says, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, here's the problem with your heart. Here's the problem with my heart. Our hearts trick us into thinking that our desires are actually pure. Our hearts trick us into thinking that what we actually want, we want because it's good and because it brings God glory. Our hearts deceive us. Our hearts trick us. And here's the thing, this disease, this pathology, it's hereditary. It's hereditary. Every single human being on this earth has had this problem since Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What we talked about last week. Every single man and woman who has been born on this earth is born with this hereditary disease, a deceitful and wicked heart that is sick, that deceives you into thinking that your desires and your motives are actually pure and right and God-honoring. And that information fans into flame your desires and affections and compels you in a direction. Every single one of our decisions ultimately. Every single one of those directions seems right at some point in our own eyes, doesn't it? Or you wouldn't do it. Every single decision you make along your path in life seems right in your own eyes. Or you wouldn't do it. But in the end, we know because of this pathology of heart, ultimately, many times, they simply lead to death. Because our heart is deceitful. It's sick got to be dealt with. Look at Genesis chapter five, lest you just think I'm making things up. Let me just give you a couple scriptures like I did about the anatomy and the function just to show you the hereditary and diseased nature of our heart. Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his what? 
So now we've got intention and thought. We've got mind, we've got infection, affection that then simply inform what? Decision and will. Every single intention of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil. Was only evil continually. I'll give you another one. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. This is essential for where we're going this morning. This is essential that you get this text right here for a right understanding of the heart. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Jesus says, we're out of the heart. Out of the heart. That constellation of the mind and the affections and the will. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, come murder, come adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things Jesus was talking to the Pharisees that defile a person. This is the pathology of a deceitful heart. A heart that since birth has been sick. And its sickness deceives us into thinking that our wants, our desires, are always and only pure. They're always and only glorifying to God. And so here's the thing, even for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ, for those that we went through the book of 1 John and talked about what it looked like to be born again, what the markers are of being born again, every single last one of us must still deal with the remnants of that old self that still remain in us. We're not free from the deceitfulness of sin. We're not free from the deceitfulness of that disease that has laid waste to our old self. Every single last one of us, every single day, must choose who we will love the most. What will capture our affections the most? God or ourselves? God for who he is and what he has done or our counterfeits that we talked about last week. And this difficulty in making this choice is only compounded because our hearts deceive us into thinking that the course that we're on is leading to life. It leads to life. But oftentimes, left unchecked, it will only lead us towards death. I mean, a great example of this battle that rages within the soul of a Christian, Romans chapter seven. And so many of you are familiar with this. The great apostle Paul Saul, who met Jesus on that road, transformed into an absolutely new man, at one point murdering Christians, desiring with affection to see the church wiped away, radically transformed by seeing the face of Christ, by the good news of the gospel, becomes an entirely new man, now bent on planting churches, now bent on telling people about Jesus. In his great letter to the church in Rome, there's this section in chapter seven where you can kind of see this heart pathology at work. It's almost like a, like a spiritual journal of cardiology, you know, to keep the metaphor alive, you know. If you read medical journals at all, which I don't, obviously, I could have had a better word for that. But it's almost like a snapshot of it. 
I mean, listen to what Paul says, Romans chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. This is what he said about his own soul. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. There's affection. He delights in the law of God in my inner being, in his heart, in his inner man. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul loved the word. Paul loved God. Paul loved the scriptures. But he recognized that there was something else at work in him. Something else waged war against the truth that caused Paul to anguish over this battle. Over this battle of competing desires. This battle of competing affections. Paul sought after God. He desired God. And yet he found himself constantly pursuing sin. Paul, like the rest of us, had to do battle with a deceitful heart. His heart constantly whispering to him about the potential delights to be found in sin and in the joy of disobedience and in the illusion of self-autonomy. Listen to what he said, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. What an awareness of the battle. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not resign ourselves to our spiritual disease. We do not resign ourselves to this pathology of heart. We actually fight it. God commands us to fight against the sinfulness and the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Yet, here's the thing. We can't simply know enough to fix it. We can't simply cram enough information in our minds to inform our minds, to fan our affections into flame, to be perfect every single moment of every single day so we make perfect decisions every single moment of every single day. And yet at the same time, we're accountable for all those thoughts and all those affections and all of those decisions. And what we desperately need is what the Apostle Paul needed. We need God's power to transform our souls, to teach us who he is, and to direct our hearts, our mind, and our affections, and our will towards him. Without him doing that kind of supernatural work in our hearts, 100% is the death rate due to a spiritual heart condition. And that's just the reality. But God has given us weapons in this battle. God has given us tools in this battle. And one chief tool that God has given us in this battle with the pathology and the sickness and the deceitfulness of our hearts is his word. It's the Bible, it's the scriptures. I mean, listen to what Hebrews chapter four says about the Bible. You you may be familiar with this. Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 through 13 say the word of God, the the scriptures, the, the Bible, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and listen to what it does. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's no superficial thing. The Bible is no superficial book. It is the word of God, and it alone has the capacity now to go deep enough to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
of the, of the affections and, and of the mind. And no creature, the writer says, no creature is hidden from his sight. But every single last one of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. God's word discerns even the most hidden of of thoughts, of of desires, of of affections and, and intentions in our hearts. And only as God's spirit works with, in union with God's word, that that he has inspired and that he has preserved. As God's spirit works in union with God's word, our thoughts and our affections and our intentions are revealed. It's like getting that that spiritual ultrasound or, or EKG that shows us a problem that left unchecked we wouldn't know until it exploded. Until the valve just blew. We wouldn't know until we made a shipwreck of our life. But this word, God's word, in union with God's spirit, who inspired this word about God's son, alone has the capacity to expose to us the deceitfulness, the sickness that left unchecked would wreck our hearts and our souls. And God will graciously and accurately do that work in us as we surrender our hearts to him. As we surrender ourselves to him. And we surrender ourselves to the truthfulness of his word that exposes who we are at our deepest self. Exposes who we are at the core of our heart. God will graciously and accurately expose us and begin to do the work on us. Begin to do the heart work on us that transforms us, that renews our mind, that informs then our affections and our desires, that then compels us in the decisions we make and the things we do. This is what God does. In the summer, as I told you, I'm trying to tee up what we're going to do and the direction we're going. This summer, I want us to intentionally approach our study of the word of God from the aspect and and the perspective of surrendering our hearts to to the great heart surgeon. I feel even blasphemous saying that. To surrender our hearts to the great heart surgeon as we take our time through the summer to walk through Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're gonna take the summer to work through Jesus' most famous and as far as recorded lengthiest sermon. And what I want us to do is to approach it with the intention of surrendering our hearts to him to do work on us through his words and his spirit. And we're gonna be looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew. So if you've got your Bible, flip over there. I'm gonna give you a brief introduction to this sermon. I'm not gonna go into it at all because I don't wanna rob those who will be preaching this summer from the text. I don't wanna rob their perspective and their thunder on this. So I'm gonna introduce you to the text 
And then I'm gonna give you my hopes for us for this summer uh, as, a, as a family as we do this, including myself, and then I'm going to pray for us. Matthew chapter five, let me open my Bible there so that I can get there with you, is where we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. But just to give you a, a little bit of context, in Matthew's chapter one and two, because we don't just come straight to chapter five, in Matthew chapter one and two, you have the stories of the birth of Jesus and, and the visiting of the wise men and, and then the angels directing Joseph to take his family, to take Mary, to take Jesus down to Egypt because King Herod has been jealous of the birth of this man who's been professed to be the king of the Jews and he's ordered that all the males in Bethlehem under two years of age be killed. An angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and he says, take your family down to Egypt. And chapter two actually ends with Joseph, after Herod dies, Joseph returning back with his family to Nazareth. In chapter three in Matthew's gospel, we're introduced to John the Baptist, his ministry, uh, his preparation of the way of, of Christ, his role in preparing people for Christ. And you actually see the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in chapter three. And in chapter four, you see right after that baptism, Jesus being led by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness where for 40 days Jesus does battle with our enemy. He is tempted by Satan at the deepest, most profound heart levels of knowledge, of affection, of intention. And in our place, you can read that story, Jesus defeats Satan, and from the wilderness he moves into his initial ministry in the region of Galilee. As he goes into Galilee, Jesus is teaching and he's, by the power of God, healing those who are sick and those who are diseased. And in chapter four, verse 17, you kind of get the beginning of that message that's gonna begin to frame kind of how we see the Sermon on the Mount to some degree. And this is Jesus' essential message as Matthew records it. Chapter four, verse 17. From this time, Jesus began to preach and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn from the counterfeits. Repent of the illusion of self-autonomy. There is a new king and there is a new kingdom. And this is what the gospel means. The gospel we talk about often is simply good news. And it was a political message. It was never a, a, a church word. It was a political word. And when a land would be conquered, the king would send out a messenger. And he would go to all the conquered territories. And he would get into a public place and he would proclaim that there is a new kingdom in charge. There is a new king in charge. This new king and this new kingdom bring new blessing. They bring new rules, they bring new expectations. That message was called the gospel, the good news of a new king and a new kingdom. And Jesus begins his ministry by declaring, repent, turn from the things that you have trusted in in vain. For the kingdom of heaven, a new kingdom, with a new king is at hand. And from there you see Matthew recording Jesus calling his first disciples a pair of brothers. He calls Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Then he calls and gets the sons of thunder, James and his brother John. He calls them and with them he begins to continue to minister to the, to, to the Galileans and crowds begin to follow around Jesus. Great crowds, Matthew and both Luke record, come to hear this man, to experience this man. And at that point we get to chapter five. It says, Jesus, seeing the crowds. Actually, let's go back. Let's go back to verse, verse 25. Great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, seeing the, the people, the, the multitudes that have now come to, to see this man, to hear this man, to, to experience what was happening in the presence of this man. Seeing them, he went up onto the mountain 
And when he sat down, his disciples then came to him. And from this point forward, through chapter seven, we have what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. But it is Jesus unpacking for the crowds and for those who had followed him up to this place, his disciples, what life look like, looks like in this new kingdom with this new king. What are the blessings? What are the expectations? What does it look like with a new king? Verses one through 11, radical reorientation of heart. What does it look like to live in this new kingdom? Jesus radically redefines the the affections and the dispositions of the heart. And unlike most gospels of the time, it starts with blessing, not curse. Not if you don't do this, then this happens. That's how most started. No, he starts with blessing, and we're going to go through that. Verses 13 through 16, the last little part of the introduction, when Jesus then stresses, and this is just important to catch, Jesus then stretches that this, this stresses that this life that we live in this new kingdom, as citizens of his new kingdom with him as a king, our lives are to be lived out loud. They're to be lived in full view of people. We're not to run as citizens of this new kingdom and retreat into a cave, thankful there's a new king and then hopefully no one else will come. No, we're to live out loud. This new life in this new kingdom in front of a watching world. Now here's what I wanna say about the Sermon on the Mount, just kind of another by way of, of introduction and kind of just setting up the series and getting you ready for what we're going to look at when we go through the verses. The majority of us, if we come from any kind of background in the church, if you're familiar with this passage at all, uh, you know it as the go-to place for Jesus' teaching on morality. I mean, you know you go to the Sermon on the Mount when you wanna know what Jesus said about what we're supposed to do or what Jesus thinks about certain particular things that we do. You know, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you get dealing with making promises, you get Jesus dealing with revenge, with loving your enemies, with giving to the needy, with prayer, with fasting, uh, with all kinds of issues related to money, with anxiety, with judging people, with anger. You get Jesus dealing with our hearts in relation to our marriages, our relationships between men and women. You get Jesus dealing with all of this. But to reduce the Sermon on the Mount down to that level and so trivialize it, at best, let me say, when you reduce it to that level, you trivialize it. At worst, when you reduce it down to just Jesus' instructions on morality, you make it an instrument of condemnation to your own heart and to the hearts of others. That's not, that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And let me just take a second to give a little bit of an aside here real quick. Just a little direction as we go into the summer for, especially for our families that are in here. You know as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus touches on a couple of issues um, that for some families uh, can be sensitive issues. Um, And what we wanna ask of you, moms and dads, is that you decide how you want to deal with particular issues, especially pertaining to the hearts of men between the relationships with women and and, and divorce. That however you want to deal with that, with your family, wanna give you the right and the power to do that. Here's what we're going to do though. We're actually going to preach about that. And here's some encouragement I wanna give you. You can rest assured 
We, I wasn't there, so I couldn't tell you positively, but I would stake my best bet. There were kids present when Jesus preached this sermon. There were kids there who had gathered in the crowd. And when we preach the Bible here at Redemption Hill, our effort is to always carry the same tone that the Bible carries with a particular text. This is Jesus dealing with our hearts. This is Jesus dealing with the things that come between men and women in their relationships. This is Jesus doing this. We, we, don't do, we won't preach this in any effort to be scandalizing, to, to get attention. It's preached with the same tone that Jesus preaches it. And I would encourage you as well, especially when it comes to uh, those relationships that remember that one in particular is one of the Ten Commandments. That kids who learn from the earliest ages that men and women should not commit adultery. So it's one of those things we want to put before you. It's coming. It's in Matthew chapter 5. It's in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But we want you to make whatever decision you need to make about how you want to lead your family, especially your children, into those particular topics. Um, and second, this is a sidebar because our families are all gathered together this summer because we don't have classes for our kids throughout the summer. My second encouragement, especially to parents, get trained for our classes. This is a sidebar. Get trained for our classes. Ray talked about where we are in relation to the children's ministry and the volunteers we've got. Praise God, the toddler's class is back going. We find these classes valuable. We find the classes, especially where we're going with our children's ministry and teaching the kids verse by verse through the Bible. All the ages learning the same thing so we can lead them well at home. We find it immensely valuable. It's not something that we feel like we have to do. It's something we want to do. So I want to encourage you, mom and dad, get trained to serve in our kids' ministry. Of all the volunteers that have been trained so far, 10% or less, I don't have the exact number in front of me, 10% or less are actually parents of Redemption Hill. 10% or less are actually parents of Redemption Hill. That includes some of the elders and staff. That would take it down to even 5% or less. Moms and dads, get trained, get equipped to help serve other families and your own children in teaching the Bible. But we're gonna leave that particular and those particular issues to you and the decisions you want to make. But when we come together that week, we will be teaching on those things. That's my sidebar. I'll go back, date myself from the OJ trial. Remember sidebars? Date myself, come on back. But the Sermon on the Mount is, is not Jesus' message of morality. It's, it's not an instrument to be used to earn any kind of merit before people or at worst, any kind of condemnation to bring upon our, ourselves or others. Jesus actually does some of his most profound work on the hearts of those who would follow him in this sermon. Verse 20, chapter five. It, it says this, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what people read and then launch into, this is what we have to do, how we have to be. And Jesus then redefines how we deal with all these particular issues. He bookends his message. He bookends his sermon with a depiction of the heart. Chapter seven, verses 15 through 20. Jesus gives this great picture of how the heart is ultimately at the root of all the desires and the actions and the decisions of a man that will know his followers by the fruit of their lives and that fruit is born of their hearts. 
And then Jesus gives in verses 21 through 23 of chapter seven, a depiction of the consequences of our, of our heart. That, that frightful passage in chapter seven, where Jesus will look at some of those who did great things in his name and he'll say, depart from me, you never knew me. Their heart had deceived them into thinking that what they were doing and what they were wanting and how they were going about it was glorifying to God, but in the end, it had been far from him and it had led them to death. Jesus bookends his great sermon on the righteousness and holiness that's to mark our life and the fact that apart from some time of dramatic change in our hearts, we will never spend eternity with him. In between, where does the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees actually come from? Where does the capacity to obey the words of our king come from? Where does the capacity to find his word life-giving and not condemning come from? This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is full of imperatives. It's full of things that we are to do, things that we are to be, but every single last one of those things is based on what we've talked about in the past, being a gospel indicative. It's based on what God has done for us. It's based on, it's based on the fact that the Holy Spirit has made us new. Now we are citizens of a new kingdom with a new king, and that is indeed good news. And all of those things, the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, the obedience out of delight and not duty, all of that comes as Jesus does work on our hearts. All change in righteousness has to come through the heart. Jesus does some of his most powerful heart work in this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is a message ultimately about the gospel. The good news of this new kingdom, this kingdom of heaven and Jesus as king. It's a message of health and it's a message of freedom. Ultimately, the righteousness that's supposed to be ours that exceeds that of the Pharisees, the, the holiness that is supposed to mark us and the obedience that we're supposed to be characterized by, both of those are a result of the freedom and the health that come because of the gospel and the work of Jesus. Those things don't bring freedom. They're a result of freedom. And if we ever get that backwards, and this is what happens with the Sermon on the Mount, so often we get it backwards. We read all these things that Jesus says about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, and we think we've got to go do these in such a way that exceeds that of the Pharisees or else Jesus won't love us. We won't be free. We won't be accepted. No, 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 no. The capacity to be who we're called to be and do what we're called to do is the result of the freedom that we found from the work that Jesus has done and is doing on our hearts. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately about. And so here are my hopes for us this summer. I, I want to go into the text, but I can't because I'm saving that up for those who will be preaching through this. Here are my hopes for the summer, and this is how we'll end. Chiefly, I want us as a family and I want you as individuals to be astonished by the gospel. I want you to be astonished by the gospel. And here's what I mean by that is as quick as we are to claim the truths that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, as quick as we are to quote those things and claim them to be true, here's my hope for us. I want us to be actually be claimed by those truths. 
as quick as we are to claim the truth of this sermon, I want this sermon to actually claim us. I think we get really quick at times to talk a lot about Jesus, to be really impressed by Jesus, but yet to be far from having an actual relationship with Jesus. I want us to not simply claim the things he says. I want us to actually be claimed by them. I don't want us to be more impressed by the propositions of the gospel and the good news that he brings. I want us to surrender and treasure it. I don't want us to be content with claiming the truth of something like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And be slow to actually treasure and believe something like Galatians 2, 20. That you have been crucified with Christ that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. In the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who lives in you, who lives in you and gave himself up for you. I want you to be astonished this summer as we go through the Sermon on the Mount by the gospel. I know what it is to have a cold heart. I think I'm coming out of a season of a, of a coldness that's probably marked my heart towards Jesus as a person in relationship to me and the gospel itself because it's easy. It's easy to get busy with the truths about him and about the gospel, to be impressed by him and the truths of the gospel and not really be in relationship with him. And I'm in a, just probably a season of real repentance in my own heart because the busyness of, of the church and the busyness of the fruitfulness of what God is doing in the church has, has gotten me to a place where I think I was fascinated by him but not really spending much time with him. I want us to be astonished by the gospel this summer. I don't want us to be people who, who simply claim these things but I want us to be claimed by them. As we read his sermon and we study his sermon, I want you to approach this time in this text as engaging with Jesus, as as the great prophet, as the one who declares to us the way of life and whose words are true. To, to engage with Jesus as the great priest who was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He who gave us the righteousness that we have by faith. Who is our savior, who is our priest, who meets us in our deepest need, who is our advocate before the throne of God, who meets us with grace. And I want you to engage with Jesus as the great king that he is. I want you to be in a relationship with him this summer as the great king that he actually is. That you submit to him for who he is. The one making all things new. The one who's brought this new kingdom. The one who's not content to simply start something and never finish it, but who is at work right now making all things new, including you. Your heart and the broken world around us. And as we engage with Jesus, I just pray that we'd be a people that would just ask him for his spirit to be alive and well within us. In the, in the sermon, and I promise you, I'm gonna close here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray as kids who belong to a good father, who have, because of his grace, received his spirit who is making us new, who is conforming us into the image and likeness of his son, who has sealed us as God's people for all of eternity. We haven't leaked the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that we ask for the Holy Spirit because we're leaking him in any way. You are a follower of Christ. He is in you. He has sealed you. He is at work in you. But Jesus says we can pray and we can ask the Father for the Spirit. 
there is a way in which there is an appropriation of the Spirit that Jesus said we can ask the Father for. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually said in chapter seven, which one of you, if he, his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Serpent. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to you who ask? And I want us to, I want us to ask. And I want us to be bold in our prayer and bold in our repentance. I want us to approach this text and as a people of prayer who pray like our life actually depends on it. Because it, it does. It, it, it does. And this is an aspect of my own repentance here. Busyness has been the enemy of what's most important. Being impressed by Jesus and the gospel has been the enemy of actually treasuring the gospel. I want us to be a people who pray as we approach this text like our life depended on it because you can't maintain the intimacy. You can't maintain the fruitfulness. You can't maintain the growth that the Spirit causes just by continuing to do the right things. It comes from being in close proximity and relationship with Jesus. Let the Sermon on the Mount guide us in, in prayer this summer. And this is my hope for us. Use this text as a guide. And pray this text each week with your community. Pray this text this week with your family. Pray the text each week with those you're in relationship with. Let it guide you. Let the word of God through the person of Christ and the power of his spirit claim you. Don't be content with simply claiming it as something you believe. Let it claim you and change you. Let's pray like our life is actually dependent on it. And the heart is an amazingly complex thing. We will do well not to minimize it or, or trivialize it. Our heart is the wellspring of, of all that we are. Our mind, our desires, our, our aspirations, our loves, our will. And though it's barely known by us and we're so easily deceived by it, it's completely known by God. It's completely known by God. And Jesus said he is the good shepherd and he knows his own. This summer, let's just be claimed by Jesus' great sermon. Let's ask him to make us a, a gospel-astonished, Jesus-worshiping, spirit-empowered, humble, prayerful people for his glory and ultimately our joy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to read your word and in a sense just to share what my heart is longing for and then ultimately what you're providing. Lord, I thank you that you are showing up in, in my heart and you're showing up in, in our hearts as a, as a church. And Lord, we are people that know what it is to taste of your grace and of your goodness. And I'm a man and ultimately a pastor who knows what it is to experience and, and wrestle with a, a coldness towards you, a failure to love you for who you are, to be more impressed by you and to be in a living and active relationship with you. Jesus, I just thank you that 
We are your people, and you don't just throw your hands up in the air at our, at our failures and at our, our blemishes, but instead you wash them away. And I pray for every single last one of us in this place this morning, that in this next season, this summertime, as we enter into your word and your sermon to us, we will find much joy. We will find great joy in you and in your grace towards us. May you bring much glory to yourself as you bring renewal to our hearts and in our hearts then through our hands to the place that you've sent us. We ask this, Jesus, in your name for your glory. Amen.